Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we're going to spend a little time on debate preview ahead of next week's Democratic debate. I know, another one. It's going to be the last one before Iowa. It's happening in Iowa, and we're going to get into all the preparations around that and what the Democratic presidential race looks like heading into those caucuses. But first, we've got our foreign affairs reporter, Nahal Tusi. What day is it? And Politico Pro Deputy Defense Editor Dave Brown. <laughs> and they are with us to bring us up to speed on the death of Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian general who was killed in a U.S. strike at the end of last week. The ramifications in terms of foreign policy, in terms of what's going on at the state and defense departments and in the White House. The American people should be extremely grateful and happy. Some of the inconsistencies in the responses we've seen from the Pentagon and other American officials. We're going to dig into all of that in just a moment. As always, a quick note that we are taping this on Thursday. This week, that's January 9th. So if anything breaking happens after that, we will talk about it next week. All right, we're going to dive right in. Nahal Tusi, Politico Foreign Affairs correspondent. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And Dave Brown, the deputy defense editor for Politico, also anchor of the Morning Defense newsletter. This is your Nerdcast debut, right? It is indeed. Thank well, you welcome. for having me. Thank you for being here. So a lot has happened in now about a week since uh, President Trump ordered the strike against Qasem Soleimani on January 3rd. And actually, and the events preceding that as well. Nahal, can you briefly take us through the beats that brought us up to this moment and bring this discussion up to speed. And really, it starts uh, in in the most recent <laughs> like, uh, non <laughs> non century version of this this history and the, the conflict between U.S. and Iran. Right. So I'm not going to go back all the way to 1953, <laughs> uh, but yeah, very recently um, there has just been a lot of tit for tat escalation. Iraqi militias that are backed by Iran have been attacking bases where U.S. troops are housed. Recently, an American contractor died. Now, the U.S. struck back at one of these militias, killing some two dozen people. And as and then there was this uh, attempt by some of the supporters of this militia to do a, a sort of takeover of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. That didn't get very far. And then on the 3rd, the U.S., uh, well, the second our time, uh, January 2nd our time, 3rd in Iraq, uh, the U.S. launched a drone strike that killed um, a very high-ranking Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, uh, as he was visiting Baghdad. And this is a guy that the U.S. considers a terrorist that they feel like has uh, – that they believe has been behind numerous uh, attacks on, um, on Americans. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Iran, furious, uh, several days of mourning, they respond with a missile barrage against bases in Iraq that host U.S. troops. No one died. And President Trump um, took what 
the Iranians kind of made it seem like a like an off ramp. He basically said, "We're going to respond with sanctions instead of military action." Now, this is not over. We're getting indications that the Iranians plan other things, uh, so the escalation could resume. Um, but at the moment, we're in sort of a plateau. I think one thing that's really been illustrated over the last couple of weeks has been what's how really dysfunctional the national security decision-making process is uh, in this administration. And it's been like this from the beginning for a variety of reasons, uh, from ideological leanings to simply the fact that a lot of Trump political appointees simply do not trust uh, the career government employees. They view them as a quote-unquote deep state and a bureaucracy that they just don't like. So there's been just tremendous amount of disconnect. Um, there have everything from, you know, not enough meetings taking place to people who really need to know being left out of the process and having to come up with um, justifications and methods after decisions are made. So, you know, we don't know every single in and out of what led to Soleimani's killing and, and all this other stuff. But when you look at, for instance, what happened with the letter. The Pentagon just said moments ago that that widely circulated letter announcing that the U.S. was repositioning troops in Iraq because it had been ordered to depart by the Iraqi government, was mistakenly released. That was indicative of how the decision-making process, the uh, notification process, has just broken down. Uh, the letter, he says, quote, that letter is a draft. It was a mistake. It was unsigned. It should not have been released. Poorly worded, implies withdrawal. That is not what is happening. Even almost at a lower at a lower level, almost at a granular level. Uh, I usually cover the State Department. This is something I constantly hear about is people are like, look, they don't loop us in. I don't know that this is happening until the president tweeted about it, which leads me to the last point, which is even if they were to have a completely pristine national security making process, um, Two things. One is you always also have these weird side processes, right, that nobody necessarily knows about except maybe for Rudy Giuliani, who's doing his own thing, or Jared Kushner doing his own thing. So even the classic process is has to deal with these other processes. And then ultimately there's the president who himself with one single tweet can upend weeks and months of work in trying to achieve an objective. Right. And I think we've seen a lot of this just uh, play out in just the past 24 hours where you see all these conflicting reports from administration officials either in the White House or the Pentagon about uh, how were our forces warned in Iraq? Because you'll see people say, well, we knew it was coming based on our sources and methods. But there are other reports that Iran gave Iraq a heads up, which then turned and did it to us. Um, but then General Milling, Secretary Esper said, no, 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 we, we knew it was coming. And we actually gave Iraq a heads up. Or you look at the other issue about what were Iran's goals because we saw stories play out saying the Iranians didn't really want to kill the Americans who were at al-Assad in Erbil. But then General Milley came down and said, absolutely, that is what they wanted to do. So we're getting into fundamental issues about what's been done and what are the goals and – you, you reach a point where it becomes very, very difficult to know who to believe. And also the, uh, the, the reasons for why what has been done was done, right? We've gotten into that with in, in the immediate aftermath of, of the strike against Soleimani. Yeah, right. They, they cannot get their messages straight on was he really an imminent threat? What does imminent mean? What exactly was he doing? They, they keep giving different reasons as to why Soleimani, who has been you know, killing Americans and planning to kill Americans for decades, why did he have to go now? Yeah, a Democrat uh, congressman from uh, Massachusetts, uh, Seth Moulton, he came out of that briefing. He said he was watching 
Esper and Pompeo sitting next to each other, laying out the information. He said, even then, sitting there, they were not agreeing with each other. And he said he was he was watching it just play out right in front of him. And then, Dave, in, in the midst of all this, there was also a domestic reaction in Iraq. Uh, there was there was a response to that from the Pentagon that um, involved, I guess, what seemed to be a draft letter that was not meant for uh, for release, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other confusing uh, events. So Monday afternoon, maybe three or four DC time, uh, social media pretty much lit up with a screenshot of this letter written by a Marine Corps Brigadier General who's head of the task force in Iraq to his uh, military counterparts there in the country saying, we respect your sovereignty. We respect the, um, the Iraqi parliament's decision to ask for the troops to be – the U.S. troops to be removed from Iraq. We're going to begin that. We're going to be uh, – it was – I think they called it onward movement. And there's going to be a lot of helicopters – flying around. That's just us preparing our forces. But what was interesting was the the letter wasn't signed. And first, uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, rushed down to the Pentagon briefing room, not the Pentagon briefing room, but the bullpen where the reporters are, because this was not an on-camera briefing. To, first to say, we don't know what this is. We, we don't agree with it. We don't really understand where this is coming from. And we, our troops are not leaving Iraq right now. We've not made a decision to do this. Then a few minutes later, General Milley comes back down. He says, I just got off the phone with uh, General McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command. He says it was a draft. It was just a draft. And he said what was happening was the Marine Corps One Star was kind of sending it around uh, to his counterparts and to other people. It was just one of those things where you coordinate a thought before you do everything officially. And this was one of those. Now, where it gets complicated and you see a lot of conflicting stories is some people said he wasn't supposed to send it to the Iraqi side. Other people said he was. People are asking, if we're not pulling out, why would you even be sending this around, which is another big question. Mm -hmm. And then news came out that it was in the prime minister's office and they didn't like the uh, Arabic translation. So they actually sent it back to the US and it was resent uh, again, and that is what they were taking as this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. So a day later, uh, news comes out that the Iraqi prime minister is ignoring the secretary of defense's statement to the media. He's saying, I'm not listening to what you're telling the press. I'm taking this letter as a real thing. He said, and he said it was signed. And we still don't think it was quite signed, but there you can imagine there was a pretty massive disconnect there. Nahal, I mean, the, the upshot of all this, and as as you hinted at before, basically this this military action that that the U.S. took at the very end of last week, uh, enormous, still unknown consequences that that we're kind of trying to puzzle through about the U.S. relationship with Iraq, the situation of the conflict between the U.S. and Iran, all sorts of things in between. Right. I mean, it's like an intricately woven Persian rug over there. I mean, really, you know, everything is connected to everything else. So if you are going to upset the Iranians, they have proxy militias, not just in Iraq, but also in Lebanon, uh, also in Syria, uh, several other places where the U.S. has interests and or assets. Um, and they can activate them. Um, they also have cyber capabilities. They have all sorts of other ways that they can react. And the U.S. has 
increased its troop presence by what, like 20,000 now since May? Yeah, it depends on in where you region. start. Right? Yeah. And, and that's on top of the many people we already had in various bases in the Middle East. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me about how how incredibly impactful this decision to kill Qasem Soleimani was, was that it wasn't just that Secretary Pompeo was calling Arab allies like the Saudis or uh, or Israel. Um, th- we knew he would do that. He also called um, Afghanistan's leader. He called Pakistan's leader. Uh, there were the even the Indians um, got a had a conversation. And so this tells you this is way beyond just the Middle East. In terms of just the geopolitical effect. Yeah, absolutely. So but before we, we zoom back out into that, D- Dave, I want to hear uh, from you about a, a recent Politico story um, that uh, you and your team were involved uh, in about, I think, w- what you called it in, in our morning editorial meeting a few days ago, the, the Pentagon's credibility problem. Can you explain what you mean there? Having a disconnect between the White House and the Pentagon is not new for this administration. It began almost immediately and, of course, uh, over the first summer There was the big pronouncement about uh, Trump's transgender service member ban. And with a lot of these things, we if if you cover the Pentagon long enough, you get used to this cycle where there is a tweet or a pronouncement by Trump and you call the Pentagon and they often say, we don't really know anything more. We'll try to get you something. And sometimes it's, what do you know, right? (laughs) Um, So there's, there's nothing new about Pentagon people scrambling to explain what Trump has done. But something... Is, is it feels like it's hit a new phase. And, and this seemed to begin around the early October when Trump made the decision to pull the troops out of Syria. Uh, and it's you, you had that. You had the other episode with uh, the clemency granted to the three service members uh, who were either accused of or convicted of war crimes. You had the issue of, you know, when we're sending troops over to Syria to guard the oil fields, are we taking the oil? Are we keeping the oil? Or are we just merely guarding it so it doesn't fall into the hands of ISIS and this becomes another revenue stream? And more recently, you have the issue where Trump was threatening to bomb Iran's cultural sites, which would be illegal. Uh, so you put a lot of these things together. And what happens is this forces the leaders of the Pentagon to answer questions about these. And they're very, very uncomfortable questions. So what we note in the story is um, you have top leaders like Esper and Milley who either have to kind of dodge when they're asked about it. They, they either don't directly answer the question or they will throw it back to another issue or they will say, I take this to mean something else. I'll give you an example. With the take the oil, keep the oil situation in Syria, Trump very specifically said, we want to take the oil. And I I think it was uh, after the Baghdadi raid, he said, we ought to try to set up a deal with ExxonMobil where we can do it. So Defense Secretary Esper was asked about this and his answer was, well, six and a half dozen the other. I take that to mean we have secured the oil fields and we are denying that revenue stream. So enough of this happens. You have the difference between people seeing these disconnects between the White House and the Pentagon and saying, sort of inside the beltway, oh, isn't that odd? We don't really see that, to a bigger issue, which is the Pentagon's credibility. It comes to the the issue of when the leaders at the Pentagon speak, do they have credibility? Is that with international partners, partners, allies, Kurds, uh, or with maintaining good order and discipline within the military with the war crimes, or with the issue of 
what are we going to do with the oil in Syria or the cultural sites? That's that's the bigger issue, and that seems to be the phase that we're in. And it seems obviously the the president of the United States is the commander in chief. The folks at the at the Pentagon take orders from him, but it's also a question of whether the advice and the counsel of senior military leaders is being heeded. That is correct. And in the story we posted yesterday, uh, we quoted a, a senior Pentagon official, and this was specifically about the uh, the war crimes cases and uh, Trump's order to restore the Navy SEAL Trident pin for Chief Petty Officer Eddie Gallagher because he told the Secretary of the Navy to do it. There were some machinations that happened between uh, Navy Secretary Richard Spencer and the White House. He was forced out and then Esper restored that pin and he canceled the board that was going to look at whether he should keep it. And the senior military official told us how difficult it is to run the department when you give your best military advice and these are senior military professionals who have the experience to give good advice on this. And I think the quote was, yet Trump is just going to listen to the loud mouths on Fox News. It's it's demoralizing because you really feel like you're not getting the you're not giving have the ability to give the advice that you need to give in those situations. And yes, uh, Trump is the commander in chief. He absolutely uh, has the ability to do this. But time and time again, uh, whether it's the Syria situation or the war crime situation or uh, the the bombing of the historical sites. There's a difference the, the between the mooted bombing of them. Right? The mooted bombing. That's right. He he did backtrack and said he wanted to follow the law, which is good. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, but with those issues, is what was recommended by the National Command Authority to the president, and is it being heeded, or is he just going to lose to Fox News every time? And Nahal, on a related thread, as as we're talking about the influence of of the senior military leaders in the Pentagon here, you've written about the growing prominence of someone you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, amidst all this. You you essentially called him the secretary, uh, the shadow secretary of defense. That's right. I mean, aside from the president himself, Pompeo is easily the most powerful national security official uh, in this administration. He has this uh, nickname of being the Trump whisperer. But I actually think that's a little misleading because the idea is if you're like a whisperer, you can convince Trump to do something. But Pompeo kind of – he he never shows any difference with the president in public. And the sense you always kind of get from him is that – Whatever Trump ends up wanting to do, Trump uh, Pompeo goes along with it. Mm. So it's <laughs> it's it's not quite the whisperer thing. Um, but yeah, he you know, and part of the reason that Pompeo has become so so powerful, uh, not only is is it because of his close relationship with President Trump, uh, but also um, and and the, part of the reason that 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 relationship is good is because he doesn't contradict the president in public, uh, even if it means he says stuff that's totally misleading. But the other reason is is that there have been so many leadership changes in, in other uh, areas. Um, we're on the the fourth national security advisor, right? Flynn, McMaster, uh, Bolton, Bolton, and now O'Brien. O'Brien. Right. right. I mean, so other people have. It's just there's just been like vacancies, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 they're just not as as powerful as Pompeo is in this cabinet. And Pompeo, first off, also, you know, he has a military background. He went to West Point, et cetera, et cetera. But he also led the CIA for a year. So he also has a bit of that intelligence understanding as well. That's a great point. Dave, last word. Well, the other thing that that, uh, that Holly pointed out in her story is there's while there's also the West Point background, there's also the way he talks. There is a militaristic way of speaking. I think you mentioned that he, he says things like commander's intent. Mm-hmm. And He's all over the Sunday talk shows. 
But he's getting into the hyper-specific military things that you would expect to hear from a secretary of defense about troop movements, uh, whether we're staying, missile strikes and all those deals. So when you get into the issue of the shadow defense secretary, there's also um, the, the way he talks and his background and how he brings that to the table. That's a great point. Dave, thank you so much for, for taking the time to walk us through all this. My pleasure. Nahal, thank you as well. Thank you. All right. For part two this week, we are going back on the presidential campaign trail ahead of next week's presidential debate. We've got two of our campaign reporters here. We've got Zach Montalaro, author of Politico's Morning Score newsletter. Hey, Zach. Hey, Scott. And national political reporter Holly Otterbein, our Bernie Sanders reporter, joining on the line from Philadelphia. Hey, Holly. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with the big news, Zach. We've got Judge Judy endorsing Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Your thoughts. <laughs> Biggest endorsement of the cycle. <laughs> now, the, so the, the, the big news right now, and what, as, we, as we kind of preview the debate that's coming up next week, we're on the verge in the next day of finalizing the debate lineup. But it looks like it's going to be the smallest debate stage we've had yet this year coming up on January 14th in Iowa. Yeah, it might get one person smaller. Right now, six candidates have qualified. Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and a late qualifying Tom Steyer. He qualified Thursday evening, you know, a little bit longer than a day before uh, the qualifying deadline closed with two big surges or apparent surges in, a, in Fox News polls in Nevada and South Carolina. And like you said, we've still got another 24 hours to go after recording this uh, where the, the qualifying window is still open. So, who you know, there could be a bunch of other polls. But as of right now, Andrew Yang right. looks like he's going to drop off the stage. Yeah, right now, Andrew Yang is at one of the four polls he needs to qualify for the debate. And we're saying this about 24 hours, a little bit longer before the qualifying deadline closes. Uh, We know a poll is coming out today, if you're listening to this on Friday from the Des Moines Register, but we don't know if anything else is coming. So it's a really tough climb for him to do it in the next day, basically. And now even one candidate dropping off the stage, that over the course of a two to two and a half hour debate, that's a lot more time for everyone else to, to talk. It's a lot more time. It's a little bit closer to having the frontrunners together on stage. Uh, Tom Steyer, frankly, shocked me when he qualified for the debate. Uh, up until up until the moment the polls came out, I would have said he wasn't going to make it because he has seen no similar surge in the few early state polls we've seen out of New Hampshire and Iowa. But he just landed with a huge splash in these two polls in South Carolina and Nevada. Yeah, and you know, two states that are maybe getting a little bit less attention. They're still getting some attention, but where he's maybe had a little bit more of the environment to himself. We should also wait and see, you know, hopefully – we can get a few more polls there right. in the next right. week or two to, to get a sense of whether this is real or whether this is an outlier. Uh, but so meanwhile, so Andrew Yang kind of teetering on the bubble. We'll see over the next 24 hours. Cory Booker and Tulsi Gabbard. Probably not making it. Members yeah. of Congress who have been in past debates, likely very much so to miss the polling threshold. And then you've got a candidate like Michael Bloomberg, Judge Judy endorsement aside, whose strategy <laughs> is about not being on the debate stage. He's rich enough to do whatever he wants in terms of the way he's campaigning, but he's specifically not trying to meet the donor threshold. So, Zach, just how significant is this debate, all these folks who are going to be on stage together just a few weeks before the Iowa caucuses? Well, it could be big. You know, we are basically in the real sprint between now and the beginning of March. We have the four early states, and there's going to be a debate before basically every early state voting. This debate is coming about two weeks before the caucuses, and it's really going to be the last time that these candidates have to try to distinguish themselves. Those top four candidates have really been locked both, you know, in these early state polling, the few pollings that we've gotten have been locked together, and there's really not much separation. Is Can they somehow separate themselves from the pack? 
in these debates. We really haven't seen all that much movement polling-wise immediately following debates. This cycle, it's been some gradual ebbs and flows for candidates. But if someone's going to try to push out and really try to push ahead, it's, it comes on Tuesday. And of course, I mean, we saw more evidence of that today in a poll, right? You had the top candidate, I think Biden, right? At 20, Buttigieg. Buttigieg, pardon me. Buttigieg at 20 percent in New Hampshire. The bottom of the of the, the top four was Warren at 15 percent. That's not a lot of space. And then, you know, obviously Sanders and Biden stuck in between. Holly, that, that kind of brings us to what we're expecting to see in the debate. And I think in the in the past, we've seen the activities of the candidates in the week or two before each debate really telegraph some of the major events uh, we've seen take place at those debates. And this week, we've seen Bernie Sanders really explicitly criticize Joe Biden's record in a way that maybe his campaign has been doing mm-hmm. in its emails and its surrogate work and stuff. But but Bernie Sanders himself has not focused as much on that of late. And it seemed really notable that he's kind of turning on Pick your metaphor, t- turning it on uh, right now, right before this this final pre-Iowa debate. Yeah, he's been rolling out a series of new critiques of Joe Biden. So um, for months now, he's been hitting him on you know his vote for the Iraq war and his support of free trade deals. That's come up again and again at, at these debates um, and in other places. And Biden has just repeatedly sort of ignored them and like moved on. And, you know, the debate moderators don't usually ask for a follow up. And so the conversation just keeps on rolling. Um, what Sanders has done recently is um, add a critique on the bankruptcy bill and then also uh, Biden's past support for Social Security cuts or uh, keeping Social Security where it's at. And so I am looking to see whether uh, Sanders, again, criticizes him on those particular issues during the debate and whether Biden, you know, for the first time basically actually hits back at him. I'll be curious to see whether that happens. And it's really interesting that Sanders has basically saved up this critique over Social Security um, cuts until now. Sanders is trailing Biden pretty badly among senior citizen voters. Those That's the group that Sanders performs the worst with, and his team is well aware that he needs to do better if he wants to win the nomination with that group of voters that typically votes in high numbers. And so they have not hit him on this issue of Social Security until very recently, until really this past week. And so, you know, it's just interesting to see him save it, you know, for the weeks leading up to the Iowa caucuses. That is interesting. And and the, the other interesting thing that struck me about uh, Sanders' critiques, which he has aired in, I think, a couple interviews with reporters now, he's not just criticizing Biden's record. He is using those criticisms and casting them as an argument that Biden isn't capable of beating Donald Trump in November 2020. It's an electability argument as much as a policy critique. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And he's been using some um, fairly strong language, stronger than we've seen before out of Sanders um, toward Biden, saying that his record is weak um, and that, yes, uh, it's not going to you know excite people in the Midwestern states and places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, things like free, you know, his support of free trade deals, Sanders says, is a real liability in places like that um, that were critical to Trump's victory. And so, yeah, he is is essentially trying to take on Biden on, um, you know, the area where Biden is the strongest. Um, You know, in poll after poll, we see that voters view Biden as the most electable. And that's really um, the main factor or a major factor uh, behind him leading the national polls right now. And Sanders is trying to take a chunk out of that. And it's interesting as well, because 
Sanders has done a pretty good job when you do look at these polls, although Biden is ahead of him in perceived electability. Sanders really hasn't fallen um, in perceived electability. His is a is a decent number, at least if you look at like the YouGov economist polls um, that kind of measure it in a slightly different way than others. They say, um, is this candidate uh, more likely or less likely to beat Trump? He does okay. Um, and Warren has actually been falling in perceived electability. So, you know, this is this is coming as Warren is falling in the polls, falling in perceived electability. Sanders is trying to, um, I think, also capitalize on that and, you know, hopefully in, in his campaign's view, take down Biden's perceived electability a little bit, which is is obviously his biggest strength. Yeah, that, Holly, that point you made about about Sanders kind of his, his polling standing, just it, obviously it's moved a bit, but it's it's kind of sat in this consistent range, it seems like, while a bunch of other candidates have moved around him a little bit. Obviously, he's he's at this moment kind of toward the top end of the range of what we've seen during the campaign. Zach, what's the what else is kind of the general state of play as far as we know in Iowa, New Hampshire, nationally heading into this key stretch? Again, with the caveat that you mentioned before that we really haven't seen a lot of early state polls of late. Yeah. So at least nationally, it's really been Biden and followed by uh, Bernie Sanders, followed by Warren, followed a little bit further back by Buttigieg. But it's kind of remarkable how stable the race has been. You know, when we look, if you look at polls a year ago, it was Biden, then Bernie Sanders, then Elizabeth Warren. Uh, of course, Pete Buttigieg was really a non-factor when he entered the race because he was a mayor from South Bend, Indiana that nobody had heard of. So his rise is remarkable. In the interim, Warren has gone up and has fallen back to earth. But it's been a remarkably stable race. You know, nobody's really entered and then left the top four. It's been really those three candidates, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, you know, maybe Kamala Harris at some point in time, kind of battling it out. And these, it's possible that these early states aren't as determinative as they have been in the past. If we hit a situation that four candidates walk away with delegates in Iowa, four candidate, candidates get delegates in New Hampshire, meaning they get about 15 percent of support, that's kind of almost unprecedented. And it really doesn't clear the field at all like it has in past cycles or it might not clear the field. Yeah. So I want to close out the segment here. I want to ask uh, you, you both to, to just kind of take us through something you're looking for in the next debate. I'll, I'll go first, actually, like kind of piggybacking off this lack of polls we've seen. It's a little difficult for me to tease out like where the momentum and the, and the movement is right now since the previous debate. We, you know, I, I think it there were some important moments in there, and we saw certainly there were important moments that moved that nudged the polling up and down for different candidates in past debates. But just because it came right before the holidays, we really don't have a sense mm-hmm. of whether Pete Buttigieg has continued to rise or if he's kind of tailing off a little bit. Whether Warren is continuing to decline or if she has arrested that and might who knows might be back on the upswing from from a low point at this point. Clearly, it seems that that Biden and 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 Sanders are. Uh, seem to be doing better and has have as a result started to clash a little bit. But I'm curious how uh, that interplay will will kind of play out in the debates and whether we're going to see some moments in there that we expect to reflect in in the last stretch of polling that we get uh, between January 14th and February 3rd, the date of the Iowa caucuses. Holly, what's uh, what's on what's on your plate? What are you looking forward to to finding out at the debate? Well, I I guess I mentioned it earlier, but it is what I'm looking at, which is, you know, does Sanders really hit Biden on Social Security? And then does Biden respond? I mean, he just, again, he really has not gone after Sanders, which is interesting because he's responded to other candidates when they've critiqued him on stage, even 
candidates that are, you know, in the second, third tier, like Tom Steyer. He's come back really strong at them when they go after him. And so um, I, I will be curious to see whether Biden does that. Um, and, and then if Sanders can do anything to just grapple with this problem that he has among older voters, um, you know, is he able to make the argument that Biden is not, um, you know, it does does not have the policy record that's good for senior citizens and that Sanders does it. it um, I think, you know, my gut feeling is that it's going to take much more than one debate to do that. And so while it's interesting and kind of makes sense in a way that he saved this criticism until the end, um, you know, he's just so far down in the polls among seniors. I will be interested to see whether it, it makes any movement. He doesn't need to win among them, but he certainly needs to do a lot less poorly um, than he's doing. And can he kind of broaden out that criticism and maybe also um, with it, you know, talk about his um, policies for seniors in a way that makes them more of them come to his side? Great point. Zach? I'm watching, assuming the lineup stays the same, and I think it will, I'm watching to see what the two women on stage do. First, Warren, uh, our colleague Alex Thompson reported that Warren is moving away from the wine cave, that she's not going to you know, go after Pete Buttigieg as she did in the last debate over fundraising, over stuff like that, that Warren's kind of returning to what got her success in the first place, that anti-corruption message that I'm here fighting for you, I'm here fighting big money, I'm here fighting the banks. Uh, so far, that's what Warren is trying to do on the trail. She's doing more national media recently, trying to get out her anti-corruption message. And then I'm watching what Amy Klobuchar is doing. Uh, it feels like for points of the last debate in December that Amy Klobuchar really controlled the pace of the stage. Yeah. She was definitely the most aggressive candidate out there and has been rewarded in the very, very, very limited polling we've seen. We've seen her trickle up a little bit to that mid-single digits. That's not a lot. That doesn't put her into the first tier. She's basically established herself yeah. between the front runners and the rest and a, of the yeah, pack. Yeah, but it gives her a fighting chance. She's the pack, but she hasn't kind of joined the, right. the top four. So does she continue yet. to do that yet? Does she continue to do that, you know, come Tuesday? Is she fighting everyone on stage again? Is she – what's her tactic? Uh, and where does she go in the polls? So that's what I'm watching for. All right. That, that, is, a, that is a good one to watch. I'm very curious what she and Pete Buttigieg have to say to each other this time <laughs> Not around. Not friends. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. And Holly, thank you as well. Great to be here. Thank you. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning into our show this week. Keep an eye out. Next week, we're going to have a special debate show, as usual, breaking down a key moment from the January 14th Democratic debate in Iowa. And of course, we're also going to keep tracking impeachment for you. As of Thursday, Speaker Nancy Pelosi still hasn't delivered those articles of impeachment to the Senate, but a Senate trial is expected to start Soon, maybe? I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. When that happens, we're going to have some special episodes of NerdCast on that for you as well. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.